Hey, how are you doing? I'm so glad you joined us for this pre-recording of the message for Sunday, January 10th. We are in the second part of a series on the Gospels. Last week we talked about John the Baptist and how all of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these biographers of Jesus, said if you want to know about Jesus, you have to know about John the Baptist. Well, for the rest of January, we're going to dive into the four Gospels, and this week, we're going to look at Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew's Gospel is um, it's the start of the New Testament. It, it really pulls together the, the old and the new with the genealogy of Jesus. It lays out his ancestry all the way back to Abraham, the father of the faith, and he includes so many of the characters that uh, you might be familiar with in the Old Testament. In fact, he does take a little bit of extra time to include some of the women in the ancestry of Jesus, which is just fascinating and so important to the, to the Jew, Jewish audience that Matthew seems to be primarily writing to. You know, Matthew's take is in sync with Mark and Luke's. It's one of the synoptic gospels. In fact, somebody says that Matthew's gospel actually includes 80% of what's in the other gospels. There's nothing unique in some ways about four-fifths of what he writes. So as you're reading, and this is an encouragement to everyone, is to read all of the gospels in the month of January. As you're reading them, it might kind of feel like Groundhog Day, the movie, right? Like, didn't we do this before as you read them over and over? And just to remind you, one of the encouragements that we had was to read one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, in one sitting. I did that this week with, with the Gospel of Matthew, and it really helps you see kind of the bigger scope of what's going on in the Gospel. Well, Matthew is one of the followers of Jesus. That's why we understand his, his uh, gospel writing here to be so accurate. And one of the things that's interesting is his calling, his initial following of Jesus is recorded in those first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's, it's actually identical if you look across all of them. And before we get into the main part of the message, I just want to share with you what it looks like when Matthew is called, because it's not just him um, indulging himself as he tells you about Jesus. There's something about his call that tells us about Jesus. There's a few things that Jesus says. There's a few things that he does that we can notice. And so we're going to look first in Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of the scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners. Those who know that they are sinners. There's so much about that, and that's, again, not our main text to look at today. But Jesus says, healthy people, people who think they've got it together, they don't need a doctor. 
sick people do. Now, I want you to think of a certain kind of sick person. I want you to picture them in your mind, just just for a minute. It's not going to be too disturbing, I think, but picture in your mind somebody who is malnourished. Somebody who is malnourished. Just picture that. Now, I would bet that most of you pictured something horrible of of somebody who is, you know, extremely low in weight, whose bones are, are showing, and, and, and it's, it's a terrible and, and very real picture. Often, uh, the picture of malnutrition looks just like that. But some of you, I doubt very, very few of you would picture somebody who's actually overweight. You know, you can be overweight and being malnourished. That is, you can look externally like, no, there's not a malnourishment problem here. But truly, that can be the case. It's, it's not often the case, but when it is, it's very dangerous because it's very difficult to diagnose the root problem because externally, things look a certain way. Now, I don't know a lot about medical stuff, right? But spiritual malnourishment is something we could talk about. Spiritual malnourishment, it, people who appear to be, you know, just on the outside, very well fed, who've got it together. They, 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 they've got a, a regular church attendance, right? That, that BMI, that spiritual BMI looks a certain way. You know, BMI is not the only measure of medical health, just like church attendance is not the only measure of, of, of your spiritual health, thank goodness, during this pandemic, church attendance is, is not even one of those things that anybody has a perfect scorecard about, right? You know, I would say that uh, there are a number of people who are very spiritually sick, who are regular attenders of this church, and of many churches, they're the, some of the most spiritually sick people that you will meet attend a worship service regularly. Isn't it sad that, that externally is often all that we think about, all that we look at? And denial seems to be our favorite way to cope with the fact that we're sick on the inside. In fact, Jesus speaks to the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation in chapter 3. He speaks to the Laodicean church and he says, You say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. (laughs) Jesus doesn't mince words because he says, You're sick. You're sick. And, and some of you maybe feel spiritually malnourished, like, like the, the main picture that comes to mind. Feel emaciated. Feel like you don't have anything left. Feel hopeless. You lost your joy and frustrated. And many people feel this way right now. And you know what the cure is not at the present time? It is not, let's go and do some of the same things we used to do at church, but let's just really mean it this time, right? Let's, let's um, just try harder. That's not the prescription. The remedy is not, you know what I need is I need one good sermon. I need one good quote or meme or mantra. 
That's not the, that's, that's not the path to healing, is just the silver bullet mentality of like, can you fix this right away, Pastor? Perhaps a start is, though, to know that we are sick. To know that we are sick. And we talked about John the Baptist, right? And one of his messages was, repent, confess, know that you're a sinner. And that is an amazing start. But just to know that you are broken does not fix you. So many people just champion how vulnerable they are. But it doesn't mean that they're getting healthier. Many people, when they're hurting, they look to just put off the pain. Or, um, you know, just anesthetize. Like, I just don't want to feel the malnourishment. I just don't want to feel anything. One man, Vaclav Havel, said, The tragedy of modern man is not that he knows less and less about the meaning of his own life, but that it bothers him less and less. Let me read that again. The tragedy of modern man is not that he knows less and less about the meaning of his own life, but that it bothers him less and less. And this is a tragedy. So if, if we know we're sick, what, is, what does it look like to get healthy? Well, thankfully, we have a picture of what healthy looks like, what inner righteousness looks like. And we have it in Jesus. And it's not, it's not all about the external, spoiler alert. It's not all about what other people think about you. It's not what other people can assign to you with your spiritual BMI or, or whatever other measure of external things. Jesus starts a revolution in a heart, in your soul, in your will. And so Jesus speaks, and we're going to look in in a section of teaching, probably one of the most famous sections of teaching in all of Scripture, in Matthew chapter 5, in Jesus's, as we've termed it, Sermon on the Mount. It's very creative that we named it that way because Jesus was on a mountain when he gave this message, which is symbolic in one sense because he, he, is, uh, he is dispensing grace from the mountain where Moses in the past had dispensed law from a mountain. But for some of you, you get that. Others, you're like, Moses who? Let me just tell you, Jesus keeps it simple in the Sermon on the Mount. So simple. But don't, don't let that confuse you because what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount could make your head explode because it is so genius. It is so genius. He, sa- he starts his Sermon on the Mount with what is known as the Beatitudes. And we don't have time to cover all of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, we're going to start at verse 17. But Jesus says things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So, reading in verse 17, Jesus says, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writing of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. 
So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus first starts by saying, don't misunderstand why I have come. Don't don't misunderstand this. Jesus is saying this to people who could actually see him in the flesh, who could watch him. And if they were at risk of misunderstanding him, shouldn't we be a little worried that we might misunderstand him? Shouldn't we shouldn't it cross our minds that maybe my take on Jesus is a little messed up. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus, you say, but I know about his death and resurrection. And boy, does that change how you read the Gospels, right? As you read the Gospels, you don't read about his death and go, oh no, what happens next? You, you know that he rises from the dead. You know, as he, it's like you know, spoiler alert, as you read the Gospels the whole time, right? You, you just know how this is going to work out. But sadly, We misunderstand Jesus, maybe because other people misunderstand Jesus and have misunderstood him for a while. In fact, one one pastor who I I love so much, I was reading his his book, More Than Forgiveness, today. The Lord just kind of prompted me to grab this book I had read a number of years ago off the shelf. It's it's a book by Steve Deneff. And uh, he writes about the Sermon on the Mount. He says, We pretend to be living by the Sermon on the Mount. While we still admire these pithy sayings of Jesus, we have reduced them to wise but harmless proverbs about the good life. Jesus is our man among men, our champion of our cause, a stellar example of things we treasure most. He's modern and friendly and positive. He laughs at our jokes. He feels our pains. He doesn't deplore our sins. He encourages us to do better all the while knowing that boys will be boys. So we might have some expectations of Jesus that are just flat out wrong because they've been handed to us. And this is why it's so important to, to go to him directly, to go to the word of God and understand what did it look like when, when love walked the earth in, in the body of a man? In fact, Jesus is, is misunderstood so much in the scripture, he actually is, is misunderstood in comparison to John. He talks in, in Matthew chapter 11. He says, guys, John the Baptist came and he didn't spend his time eating and drinking. And yet you say he was possessed by a demon, right? John didn't drink from the fruit of the vine. He never had something in his cup that somebody said, well, what's in that cup? John the Baptist was not a partier. He lives in the desert. But he says, the Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks. And you say, he's speaking about himself, you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
Right? Jesus says, what do you want from me? Do you want me to dance? That's what you seem to want. You have this notion, you have this preconceived idea, Jesus says to them, of what I should look like. You didn't like how John the Baptist looked, and now that I drink, yes, it would seem like Jesus had something in his cup from the fruit of the vine, that Jesus would have drank wine. He, oh, not just grape juice, perhaps, but like he was open to this accusation because externally they could stay, say stuff about Jesus. But Jesus knows that it isn't in most important what your reputation is. What matters most is what's going on inside of a person. And so Jesus hangs around people and he is open to the accusation that he's a glutton and he is a drunkard and he's a friend of Tax collectors and sinners. It's so interesting, this, this word sinners, as it's used across Matthew's gospel. It's always Jesus hangs out with sinners. It, it, and it's in the Greek. It's, it's people who miss the mark, right? Like it, it is a word for those who miss the mark, those who sin. But you know, what's most interesting is when Jesus uses the word sinners himself. In Matthew chapter 26, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's about to be arrested, he says, hey, look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And Mark and Luke use the same word there too. Jesus says, you know, the people I hang out with, yeah, they're, they're sinners. But do you know who actually took him to the cross? Sinners. There's much more to unpack there with the people that Jesus had relations with here on earth, that those he was trying to reach. It's maybe perhaps best summed up in what Jesus said to Matthew at Matthew's house. It's not healthy people who need a doctor, but sick. Jesus is around those who are hurting the most. Holiness has to be around those who need the light of God, who need the purifying love of him on their life. Well, Jesus is misunderstood. Jesus says, don't misunderstand why I have come. You know, a lot of people are maybe interested. Pastor, what is, what's your take on what's going on politically right now? Right? Like, what's, what's your understanding of, of, of Jesus politically? When you read the Gospels right now in a time where, where things are so politically charged, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read them and you go, was, maybe this isn't a fair question, but some of you read it and go, is, is Jesus a Republican or a Democrat? And in fact, some would say, if, if, if you're a liberal, you read the Gospels and go, wow, Jesus is way too conservative. Or, or if you're a conservative, you read the Gospels and you go, wow, Jesus is way too liberal. Or, or maybe you read it and you're just like, man, Jesus seems to walk that fine line between them. I, I tell you what, I think that's a little oversimplistic to just say, oh man, Jesus is always in the middle. He's always in the center. Because what it seems like is that Jesus says, you know what, there's, there's not a lot of hope in politics. That's just one of those external systems 
Jesus to say, I'm ushering in another kingdom. I'm ushering in another kingdom, friends. And, and so he's just so far outside of that. What does that maybe then look like for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who are Christians, who, who want to be drugged into, into appreciating one external sort of political thing more than another? What's, what's clear to us from the whole of Scripture is that there isn't a way to legislate your way to a healthier um, family. There's no way to legislate yourself to become a better person. Just think about parenting. Paul Tripp, in his book uh, called Parenting, says, Many of us have reduced parenting down to being a really faithful lawgiver, to being an arresting officer, a prosecutor, a judge, and a jailer. Many people have boiled down parenting to just, you know what, it's, it's rules followed by threats of punishments. But you know what, kids need more than just faithful correction. That's, that's not enough. Paul Tripp says, think with me, if all your children needed was the knowledge and enforcement of rules, then the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus would not have been necessary. We can, we can have all the laws we want, but that doesn't deal with what's going on inside. The greatest danger is not the evil on the outside, it's what's going on on the inside. And Jesus says the Torah, the first five books of, of, the, of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, all of that is there. And it actually, he doesn't say it here, it's, it's elsewhere in Scripture. Actually, all points to me. In fact, Jesus says, he says it here. He says, I came not to destroy any of that, but to fulfill it, to accomplish the purpose of the law. You know, the Old Testament is filled with so many laws, so many laws, depending on how you count it. I mean, but just hundreds of laws that are extrapolated from ten. You've heard of them probably, the Ten Commandments, right? A bunch of thou shall nots. Ten. And, 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 and it's, it's been extrapolated way out. But do you know the thing about the law is it's difficult to follow. Do you know the game Simon Says? Of course you do. I mean, this is a game that's, that's really universal, right? I, I looked it up on, on Wikipedia, and in fact, it, it's used in, in a lot of places in the world. It's all Simon says. But there's other places I was reading, like in French, it's Jacques. Jacques says, or it, actually in Quebec, they say Jean. Or, or in Japan, it's uh, La Chouio. The teacher says, or in other places, the, the, the colonel says. But anyways, um, so, sorry for the random Wikipedia. If, if that's, just, uh, that's just part of my process when I think about um, some stuff to talk to you about. But uh, Simon says, now I want to do something. I know you're at home. I, I'm ready to talk to you at home. But I would love for you to just engage for a moment in playing Simon Says with me. You know how to do it. The one rule is... Simon says it, you got to do it, right? So we're going to begin now. Why don't you stand up? Seriously, um, you can do this at home. Stand up and we'll be, 
wait, I, I already told you the game's going to begin. And if you're standing right now, you got to remember Simon didn't say. Right? I can't do this for very long. But a very crafty leader can lead the game, Simon says, and get everybody out in a matter of minutes. Even though the rules are simple, if Simon didn't say it, then don't do it. It's so simple. Just one rule to follow. Maybe I didn't get you. But one rule to follow, and we seem to mess it up. You know, it kind of reminds me of something that's pretty early in the Scripture. Remember that whole don't eat from the one tree thing? Remember Jesus is saying, you can eat from all of the trees of the garden, but don't eat from that one. Seems like that's the one rule. And what does Satan come to Adam and Eve about? Comes to question, did God really say? What did God say about this? The book of Romans talks about that Adam, but it looks forward to a better Adam. It talks about Jesus. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, it says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, that's the first Adam, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Jesus shows up as a better Adam, as a, as, a, as a second Adam. You know, it's interesting if you read that, it's in Genesis chapter 3. When asked by Satan about the one rule, Eve and Adam, I know it's, it says that Eve is the one who says it, but Adam's got to be right there. Adam's the one who heard it originally from God. Don't eat from that tree. Eve's reply is, uh, no, we don't even touch that tree. There, there is an adding to the rules by, by Adam and Eve. There, there's, there's this system set up. There's a system set up so we don't do this. We've, we've got a way to stay away from that. And, you know, as you look through the Old Testament, there's, there's always this point to, there, there's got to be a better way than having rules. Now, Moses is given rules. Right? He's given the rules on the mountain. And God's people agree. And some would say the, the Ten Commandments are, are like this covenant, this marriage covenant between God and his people. This is the to love and to cherish. This is in sickness and in health. The, the law is there. And in fact, some people would draw out the fact that the law had three kind of main components to it, the divisions of it. There's the moral law, there's the civil law, and there's the ceremonial law. Because God is speaking to his people Israel, his chosen people, and he's saying, here's what your nation would look like. This is what the civil law would look like. This is what God culture sort of looks like in one sense. And then there's the ceremonial law. Here's what it would look like when you worship me. But then there's also the moral law. And written to Joshua, who follows Matthew, we're given the instruction, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Don't deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Don't get too strict in your interpretation and don't get too loose in your interpretation. Then you'll be successful 
in everything you do. But the thing that we find throughout Scripture and we find in continuing human experience is that systems, external rules and regulations are impotent to change the inside. What's needed is more than law. There needs to be this fulfillment of the law. This law that points forward to Jesus. We still, as believers in Jesus, look back at the, at the civil and the ceremonial and the moral law of God as it points to Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. T.S. Eliot says about the church, though, that we're, we're, we're dreaming to come up with systems that are so perfect that no one will ever need to be good. How sad is it that we're trying to go back to the, the weak and miserable principles when Jesus is actually, as Dallas, Dallas Willard says, he's trying to start a revolution of the human heart and the spirit. It did not and does not proceed by means of the formation of social institutions and laws, the outer forms of our existence, intending that these would then impose a good order of life upon people who come under their power. Rather, this is quoting from Dallas Withered, if you didn't notice, rather Jesus, Jesus is, is a revolution of character which proceeds by changing people from the inside through ongoing personal relationship to God in Christ Jesus and to one another. It's, it's about this ongoing relationship with Jesus. If you want to know the law, if you want to see the fulfillment of the law, you have to look to Christ. In Romans chapter 13, and the book of Romans is filled with, with wonderful truth for you to understand this relationship between, well, why was the law given? How, how does this apply to, to Gentiles, right? Matthew's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, and, and Paul is writing to clarify for the Jews and the Gentiles. He says in chapter 13 of Romans, the commandments do not commit adultery. This is verses 9 and 10. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. Paul says the fulfillment of the law is love. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases um, in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. He says, The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for, but, we, but couldn't deliver, what we couldn't deliver is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, Simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. It's not about redoubling our own efforts. Let's try harder to fulfill the law. But let's embrace what God is doing in us. God has maybe placed 
in, in us the, the sense of justice that, that is there to draw us to the one who is just. What matters most is not this adherence to the law or not. In fact, it's as um, Paul says to the, to the Galatian church, what counts is a new creation. You know what counts is a new creation, not the external. The, the external is obviously going to come from what's inside of us. Jesus says throughout the Gospels, it's not what, what goes into a man. It's not the external stuff. Jesus is asked about, you know, what does he eat? And, and did his disciples wash their hands or not? And the Sabbath stuff. And Jesus seems to point a whole lot deeper, a whole lot further back than just the law. He points to faith. I encourage you to read the book of Romans if you want to understand more of this. Really, I think I already encouraged you to, but I want to encourage you again. Read the book of Romans to, to go a little bit deeper on this. Back to Matthew chapter 5. So Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I tell you, we're not going to remove one one jot, one iota from the law. But I warn you, this is verse 20. If Jesus says, I warn you, we better listen. Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law, you'll never enter the kingdom. Jesus says you have to have a better righteousness than those religious guys. And people might be going, wow, Really? Those guys? I mean, they seem to keep the law. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's got to be better than that. It's got to be deeper than that. It's got to be an inward work of righteousness. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Many people have loaded up on what the world has to offer And it's no wonder they have zero appetite left for the things that matter. In fact, Mary, the mother of Jesus, says in Luke chapter 1, verse 53, He has filled, speaking of God, God has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. Are you hungry for God? Are you hungry for for the true God, not some misunderstood version of him that we have come up with, but for who he really is. As if you're hungry for him, your soul can be satisfied. You know, the the feeling of satisfaction you had when you were physically full on, I don't know, Thanksgiving or Christmas or New Year's, whenever the last time you got good and, and whatever physically full might have looked like for you. Your soul can feel that way. Your your heart can be so filled. And it's only through Jesus, the real Jesus, not some misunderstood version of him. I love what G.K. Chesterton says in in, uh, his writing, Orthodoxy. He says, suppose we hear an unknown man spoken of by many men. Suppose we were puzzled to hear that some men said he was too tall and some too short. Some objected to his fatness. Some lamented his leanness. Some thought him too dark and some thought him too fair. One explanation might be that he was an odd shape 
But there is another explanation. He might be the right shape. Perhaps, in short, this, this extraordinary thing is really the ordinary thing, at least the normal thing, the center. Jesus is the center, really getting to know the Son of God. Not, not what other people say about him, but to look at him and, and understand this is what God looks like with flesh on. This is what love looks like. This is God's message to us. This is his word to us. The law and the prophets are all pointing to him. The ceremonial law, the civil law, the moral law, it's all fulfilled in Jesus. Our great high priest, our king, our healer, our example, our, our, our brother, the one who, who gives to us through his death and resurrection an inheritance that can never spoil or fade, who can fulfill the hunger that we have within our soul. Jesus said to his disciples, to those around him, he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. You know, in the call to Matthew, at, the, at Matthew's house, I should say, the accusation, Jesus, you hang around with tax collectors and sinners. You, you hang around with scum. Jesus said, go learn the meaning of the Scripture. Right, you, you religious people who have all the externals, mess, uh, just you have them all figured out, right? Go learn this. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. Go learn this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. See, Jesus brings what is in agreement with the law and the prophets. Prophets like Hosea, who said just that in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I desire mercy. Not sacrifice. Like he, the Lord said through Jeremiah, the Lord of heaven's armies, this is Jeremiah 7.21, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, take your burnt offerings and your other sacrifices and eat them yourselves. When I led your ancestors out of Egypt, it was not burnt offerings and sacrifices I wanted from them. This is what I told them. Obey me. I will be your God and you will be my people. Do everything as I say. It'll all be well. I'm so thankful for Jesus who fulfills the law in every way. The fulfillment of the law is love. Friends, if you're going to show the love of Jesus on the outside, it has to come from his love having changed you on the inside. Regular relationship with him. A revolution of the heart that doesn't come in just like one pill or in some sort of silver bullet. Quit looking for that sort of stuff. Some of you are so malnourished and you've just been filling up on the junk food on the inside. Just placating your real needs. Friends, we have in Christ all that we need for 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 holiness, for godliness. We have all we need for this life and the next. 
So, so let's step out of denial and step into God's grace. Let's step into just being so worried about the law and, and all of the external stuff. And let's spend some time. Let's dedicate ourselves for the rest of our lives to what will last forever. We're so worried about arriving to our death physically healthy. I mean, that's where we're all going, right? We're, we're all going to die one day physically. But what about spiritually? What about your soul? What about the part of you that will last forever and ever? Is that part of you nourished? It's only one way. There's only one way. There's only one one bread, there's only one water that can, that can quench an eternal thirst and it comes through Jesus. It is Jesus. He is the center. And so let's go to him. Let me lead you in a prayer. This, this would just be a prayer of consecration, of confession, of saying, God, I want more. So God, I want more of you. So show me your ways. The law is good, but it just points out our need for a Savior. It gives us maybe a starting point. It's something that we can see on the outside, but it can only be fulfilled when love comes on the inside. So, Father, help us to not look to the law to accomplish what only grace can. And so, God, would you just pour out your grace on, on us? Pour out your grace on me. You say that. God, pour out your grace on me. I want to know. I want to know Christ. The power of his resurrection. The fellowship of of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Father, we thank you that we've died to the, to the laws. We've died to that external stuff. We've died to, to worrying about what others see. We want to be alive to God in Christ Jesus. So bless us as we try to live for you as we receive Life, because with apart from you, God, we're dead. We are dead. So thank you for Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us.